Hi, this is Michael Waits, and welcome back to the Asia Tech Podcast. Today we are joined by, I'm going to give it my best shot, yeah? Hong Zhuang Lim. You got your best shot correct. <laughs> well, no, tell me exactly, because we talked about this So before. we have a little story on that, you know, when I... I before that, yeah. the CEO of Shuttle One, yeah? That's right. Got it, go ahead, tell That's me right. your story. So the CEO of Shuttle One has a very Chinese name, but I used to work in the West. And a little story... This means what, though? I used to work in London. Right, oh, in an okay. investment bank in London. Did and you really? I did. Where? In Goldman. <laughs> 31 Fleet Street. I was there for about three years. 31 Fleet, Fleet Street at Goldman Sachs. What year was that? That was uh, 09. The, the, immediately after Lehman Brothers crash, I was the cohort that was hired over there. 09, okay. So I was like the global financial crisis cohort. Really? Were you really? Were you surprised to get a job at Goldman after the GFC? I was a little bit. I did I did a summer intern over there, you know, and there was Boomtown Charlie before July, right? The summer of, of, of 08. And yeah, uh, yeah. when 2009 came, it was like bloodbath, right? Hiring freeze, you know, everything stopped. And I was back in Singapore, you know, graduating, and I was thinking, hey, is there any future in banking? But I'll give it a shot. You know, I need some stability after I graduated. Are you Singaporean by birth? I am Singaporean by birth. I'm born and bred here, actually. Most of my childhood life uh, was here. So where did you go to school? I went to school in anglo Chinese school. Uh, uh, oh, wow. Okay. So, so that's one. And after that, I went to the Singapore Management University. SMU. Yeah, SMU. That's right. Where like we like to say we are different. Different than what? We are different. So, so I was the only Chinese name guy in my cohort that was hired. Ah. And my boss, all right, the British, you know, has a problem, or not a problem, you know, a different way of, of, of pronouncing Z, right? It's either Z or Zen. If you come from the US, it'll be Zen. So, he actually asked me, could I call you John? See what I mean? We talked about this beforehand, right? Exactly. He actually said that to you, can I call you John? And what did you say? I said, you can call me anything you want, even A, right? <laughs> as long as you know you're calling me, I'm just a junior there, you know, I don't care. I'm just here to do my job. Right. But you, you know my philosophy on this, right? Names are super important to me, right? Like when you were born, your parents actually sat down and had a conversation about not just you and your family, but like probably the grandparents and the uncles and aunts and where that name fit in. My name is actually given by my grandfather. And when I was younger, or when I was growing up, you know, I've always wondered and asked him, Granddad, how come I don't have an English name? And, you know, guess what? He, he shot back and he said, are you English? Are you white? Obviously not. But it's a great answer, right? And was Grandpa from China? Grandpa's from China, from Hainan. From Hainan, from right. Hainan, so they right. migrated here. They migrated here. here and in now. fact, recently I just found out that Hong, the, the Hong in given name for me, right. actually represents some generational difference, a cohort. If you come from like old Hainan and there's a Hong, there's a Wen, you know, you represent, you know, different years that you are born over there. So it gave extra meaning, you know. And of course, I just found out found this out recently. What you know? year were you born in? I was in 1984. No, no, no the year of. So on the Chinese oh, calendar, yeah. I was okay. So yeah, the the interesting thing is, I'm born in 1984. All right, right. I, in in the Roman calendar year, mm. the year the, the calendar that most of us know. Got it. I was at the tail end of the lunar calendar. So 1984 is the year of the rat, right? The mouse. Got it. So I was actually a pig. I, I was understand. at the tail end of the 83 lunar I calendar. I understand. And I ask because I was born in the year of the snake. My wife was born in the year of the snake, and my daughter was also born when I was 36. So it's all 12-year cycles then. All 12-year cycles. <laughs> and there have been some really funny stories, which I can tell you offline about these 12-year cycles, right? Like if you're in Asia and you don't understand 
like the 12-year cycle of the Chinese calendar, you're missing something important. But also, if you do know that and you can't figure out like how old I am from the year in which I was born, right? Like, you know I'm not 12. Right? So if it's the year of the snake this year, which it's not, but you know I'm not 12, you know I'm not 24, I'm either 36 or 48 or 60, right? But if you guess like some random number... Well, you gotta have some numbers problem of calculations. <laughs> right, I know. Right? No, and, and this, is, this is crucial because when I started to get into my own stuff, right? Culturally, culture is important, like in ASEAN. Very, yeah, super important. Again, which gets back to the naming thing. Thing, right, which is why that's so important to me. Anyway, what were you doing at Goldman? You know, I worked there, yeah. I, I didn't know that. I, I didn't know who you were, but so I just I, wanted to just. I worked, have a chat. At Goldman, I worked at Goldman Sachs. I want to get this right. From two thousand and one until the end of two thousand and six, I believe, helping them build their portfolio trading business in Asia. So I helped build businesses from New Zealand all the way to. India. So I did the back office for what you would do. I was in the structured finance unit, all right, where we would structure. So when you say build business, right, you are going to, you find business, like people who want to take a loan, people who want to, you know, you are putting up interest rates, swaps and all that. I would take what you do and I have to price it. The risk the price, the So product. you were structuring? I was structuring. Yeah, I was yeah, structuring. yeah, yeah. Interesting. And what did you study in school though? Did you study finance? I did. My majors in sociology and quant finance. Okay, sociology yeah. and quant finance. So I but, but quant finance, related, right? they are not, they, I think it's at Poe's end, but it gives me an understanding of how macroeconomics work. And I guess when we start to price multi-assets from various jurisdictions, right. you know, that, that gives you an edge. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. But also, if you understand, you said sociology? Sociology, yeah. Mm. How, how societies will work. Which gives you a huge edge when you're pricing stuff, no? Which makes me very sensitive to cultural stuff. Yeah, I completely understand. When we this. negotiate, you know, a product, for example, or even internally, you know, with, with probably folks like, you know, your departments and all that. Right. Those, those are important when it comes to culture. Was, was it interesting for you to live in London? It was definitely interesting. Was that your first time living outside of Singapore? It was, it was, it was. Because, you know, when we grew up in Singapore, a lot of the things that we know in Singapore is mostly set in stone, right? But we know Go ahead. in real life, there's more than that. I've always wanted to get out of Singapore to kind of see what's out there, the world. And when I was in London, London, it was a changing of times. Yeah. Right? The dead center of economy, you know, we were six hours in front of the US and six hours, you know, uh, behind. Right. And most things, while still revolving, things are getting old, right? I mean, I was just back at Oxford Street in the UK in 2019, and I'm just surprised how dilapidated, you know, High Street is today. Is it really? So I haven't been in London since 2008. 10. Yeah, so if you think that the tube was old when you were there or were there, oh yeah, I'd be afraid it's, to go it's, it's worse. Now. It's worse right now. Really? Yeah, but I guess I guess during my time that it was a different way of looking at how people, you know, the minorities will live. Like I was Chinese, I'm Asian. People think that I'm from China, straight up, you know. Right. And yeah, when I was in when I'm majority here in Singapore, but when in the UK, you know, you're kind of marginalizing that. So sense. this was really interesting for me. <laughs> When I was in at college, I spent a year abroad in Japan, right? And again, in the United States, whether it's in Connecticut, in California, New York, or Chicago, I don't stand out at all, yeah. right? I'm not that tall. I'm not that short. Mm -hmm. I'm not that dark. I'm not that light. I'm just like a regular dude. Mm -hmm. you can, I'm kind of like, it's hard to tell what my ethnicity is. Mm -hmm. But you, you look Mediterranean, though. So it's fun. I mean, I can tell you a hundred <laughs> different stories about where people think I'm from. Yeah. I've actually had people said to me, are you from Mumbai? <laughs> okay. I'm not kidding. Okay. <laughs> I'm not kidding. But when I went to Japan, mm. I was a visual minority for the first time in my life. Yeah. And I was like 19 or 20 years old. Yeah. And that was super interesting to me. Yeah. Right, because the racism, maybe not the right word, but the discrimination that I experienced, not just when I was in school, but when I came back to work, mm -hmm was palpable. I could feel it, mm -hmm. right? And I didn't really mind per se, mm -hmm. because again, it's not my life story to mm -hmm. be discriminated against. It isn't and for anybody. <laughs> yeah, it, but, but for you, it's the same kind of thing, right? Like when you're growing up in Singapore, being of Chinese descent here is 
kind of like just everything is the same. I think I, I definitely, you know, like if you walk out here, you are like the majority. You yeah. look, you look normal, right? Nobody quote, quote unquote, right? But se, I think yeah. when I was in the UK, I, I mean, I, I felt a lot of elitism, cultural elitism. Did you sense. really? Yeah, I mean, like one of these key things, like I mean, in Singapore, people work, 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 right? The pace of you know the movements, you know, the walks and all these, these it's are aggressive. all super fast yeah. in a sense. Yeah. London is fast too, right? But I guess you know when it comes to certain uh, cultural days, like you know bank holidays or whatever, it, it, it became uh, there are a lot of traditions around it, right? Right. And when you're not like from there, yeah, right, you you get you get ostracized. Size, right? Oh, I have to be fine for my family. I have to start stopping work at 3 p.m. and because I got to travel on the M6 back. Right. And you're not involved. I'm not involved. But it's weird in a way, right? Exactly. That's what I meant by you know cultural elitism in a sense. You know, there yeah, is yeah. there is this thing that you know for centuries my family would be in, and here's this Asian boy, you know, trying to you know like like trying to understand in a sense. Yeah, so yeah. I felt a little bit off. Bank holidays and all these things. Usually I'll be wandering on the streets, you know, by yourself, yeah, yeah, by myself, all empty, trying to figure right. out what this place is about. And in a weird way, right? It's not necessarily anti-Zhuang. It's, it's just the way just, it is. It's just the way it is. Exactly. Right? Like, they didn't get together and say, let's be mean to this gentleman. Yep. They were just like, we just got to do our regular thing. And that yep. doesn't include you. Yep. Right? Yep. Anyway, that's kind of weird. So in that sense, I wanted to explore that. I mean, I had great times going to East, West, Europe during yeah, that, yeah. that period of time. How long were you How long were you there? I was there for about three years. Okay. You know, so plus minus, plus, you know, the holidays here and there, maybe about three and a half. So you left about 10 years ago. I left about, I left in 09. Right. Oh, you left in 09. I left in 09. Oh, that's 13 years it, ago. Yeah. So yeah. pretty long now. And post that, I actually wanted to come back and become normal, right? <laughs> it's not that it's not that London isn't a great place. You know, Goldman is a, is a great company for sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, It was also during that period of time, 2010, if you remember, like we were called the Vampire Squid. That, that Time Magazine I don't remember front that. cover. Vampire Squid? Yeah. So there was, Who was called that? Uh, Goldman. Uh, Goldman was called So there was this, there's this Vampire Squid thing that came out. I think I it was on enough, time. I don't remember, but yeah. And we were like, oh yeah, this is so true, man. Like, <laughs> we we why? We make money because we play both sides. Yeah, fair enough. You know, <laughs> the buy and sell, right? Yeah, yeah, we don't care. Which, so we used to say all the time, right? Like market volatility We are market was neutral. Good. That's the finance speak for that. Yeah, that's the finance speak for we make money when you're losing money. Exactly. Absolutely. And it doesn't matter if the market goes up, we can make money. If the market goes down, we're positioned both ways. I mean, this whole idea of credit default swaps and all these other things, right, man, we can make money coming and going. And it's just pieces of paper at a point in time, which was very good foundation for me because I got disillusioned with finance at the time. And you got disillusioned? I got disillusioned because, you it's know- weird though right sorry go ahead yeah it's i don't think it's weird it's just that when i was younger you know, 25 26 you know i just felt you know i have a bit more idealism for the world i mean didn't we all yeah, yeah. I, I want to be captain planet we got to save the world somewhere yeah, yeah, right yeah. from a minority in europe i actually came back to singapore and i became a minority in malaysia i started to become a farmer because so what, i was disillusioned with big finance at the time but was it really a reaction to what happened when you were in london did you really think to yourself i have to disconnect from this thing because it's really disillusioning to me i guess I, I didn't feel like disconnecting. I just felt that I wasn't providing value at all, right? To the grand scheme of things, whatever that is, society, economics, you know, whatever it is. Yeah, I mean, if you're just moving paper around to make money, it doesn't, it's not that fulfilling. <laughs> uh, but, but again, I used to say this to my brother. So my brother's a neurosurgeon. Wow, that's yeah. very fulfilling, stable hands. Very fulfilling, but also like you're saving people's lives kind of thing. Yeah. And you're also helping people become more healthy. Yeah. And I used to say to him, if I ever lose my job, the only thing I'm qualified to do is to be your housemaid. <laughs> <laughs> right? Well, at least 
least you know what's going to happen with your brain, the neurochemicals and all these things that you can prevent certain diseases, right? Hopefully. <laughs> Hopefully, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So when you went back to become a farmer, what were you farming and why Malaysia? So yeah, I came back to Singapore after the London stint and I was like thinking, yeah, this place is still a bit too small. Uh. Right? Because we were in a big city, you know, we used to drive like six, seven hours, you know, to the Midlands, West Midlands and all that, Birmingham. Right. And you can go all the way up north, right? And, you know, east to west Singapore is about 42 kilometers. Okay. So I just thought the oyster is still out there. The world is still out there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. One day, you know, I just took a car and I just drove up to north, you know, to Malaysia. And I thought, wow, this, there's an opportunity that comes out. There's so much land here. You know, why don't we produce food? Okay. Yeah. That's where it got started. I talked to my dad, you know, and my mom and I asked them, you know, what, what if I tried a different thing, right? To sell food. And they were like, you're going to F&B? <laughs> you're going to open a restaurant? Yeah. Like, no. uh, more basic. <laughs> more basic. I said, oh, no, 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 no. I'm, I'm going to plant vegetables, right? And literally, I, I got this. myself into Sarimban, a small village there, kind of just network, right? Through coffee shops, like talking to people, hey, do you know where land is, you know, that I can rent, you know, to do some farming and all that kind of stuff. Right. And that's that's how we got, it started. But what was the reaction to you in Malaysia as well? Oh, it was even more serious. So from an elite minority, I would say, from the UK, you know, right. at least they respect you because they think that you're from China. Right, right, right. All right. I became a Chinese minority in a Malay-dominated village. Yeah, yeah. So it was crazy eye-opener because I was literally the only, the only guy there, you know, I don't speak Malay at the time, right. which eventually I did okay. after after seven eight years in Malaysia. Oh wow! Two, I don't look like them, you know, hundred percent at all. In at a all. Way. Uh close but not exactly right exactly yeah, yeah, yeah so I had to look for other minority networks you know in, in all these places and that's where sociology really comes in because you truly understand how a village right or feudalism starts you know and how it expands out how the city becomes bigger you know urban sprawl and all that did you feel yourself what's the right word like changing and evolving because of all these sort of sociological experiences that you had right because when you go to London you're not expecting to be an, a minority elite yeah? yeah but then you experience that which you hadn't before mm -hmm. and then when you go to Malaysia, you've never experienced being the minority non-elite, whatever that means. Mm -hmm. Yeah, mm -hmm. And now you're getting older, more experienced, having all these things happen to you. Mm -hmm. Do you feel like yourself changing at all? Becoming maybe more thoughtful or introspective? I think during the course of wherever I was, yeah. by choice or by God's plan in that sense, yeah. you definitely don't think too much. You go along with Fair the flow, right? I think looking back, I, I felt that especially recently, over the last one year during the pandemic, you know, I it confirms a lot of, I would say, ideals that I have. Okay. Like, you know, old wife's tales, you know, sense like like for example in Malaysia in terms of racism discrimination and all that okay those just happens at a political area okay on the ground you know we people right we're just people we're humans you know we hang but isn't this true almost everywhere I, I guess it's true unless you you meet some hotliners yeah yeah you know. but in a way I feel like those people are the minority at least in my life I feel like and again tell me when I'm wrong right mm -hmm. but I feel like governments have a vested interest in creating division and mm -hmm. playing you against her mm -hmm. because it creates more power for them and we can spend a lot of time talking about oh, politics and sociology if you want. About that. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Because when you meet a normal person in the street, mm -hmm. if you see them trip and you help them, mm -hmm. they don't look up and say, oh, you're not from my tribe. I don't want your help most of the time. Mm -hmm. I think you're absolutely spot on. So I think some of these things that I faced in Malaysia, usually in terms of prejudice, yeah, yeah, yeah. I can't do this because I'm not a certain race or I'm not born here in that sense. It's, yeah, yeah. it's due to government policies. Uh, the affirmative actions in Malaysia, I think that's very well known. That's very well researched. You know, Around or, or, the Malay natives, yeah. The Malay natives in that sense. Like, Fair enough. Particularly the place where I was staying at in Sarimban, one of the biggest laws was this, right? That land can only be passed down to females. To females? Very different from the rest of how Asia works, you know, and well, all The rest that. of the world works. Oh, the rest of the yeah. world, yes. Interesting. But it is the males who come and claim the stake, you know, whenever you pay rent. And that's where they flex. 
that's where they flex, you know, that this is the land from my so-and-so, my ancestors and all that. And I all get that. it. Really interesting. Really So interesting. there's a lot of cultural under tension, you know, over there. Yeah. Firstly, assets are owned by females, but yet it's the male who comes and claims, you know, payments or tax, you know, and all this stuff. Or rentals, you know, we rent land from the villagers and all that. And sometimes this guy will, will, will pop up like out of nowhere <laughs> and ask you, you know. <laughs> Where's my money? Exactly. And here's my, you know, whatever lineage of verification. Right. Some even show us like photographers. But is that gentleman related to the woman that owns the land or is that just it can't be random right you know up to today, I, I don't know i don't know <laughs> i don't know really it's not a good thing you have to so know. we have to learn how to survive you know by being wise by actually verifying things with you know third party you know information sources how or, long were you in malaysia i was there for about seven eight years that's a long time it was a long time so the first three years literally i stayed in a village and just to give everybody context here right they the nearest McDonald's was an hour's drive away. Well, thank God. It, could, it should have been further away. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, maybe it's two hours. Too close. Yeah, so, but, you know, at the time, you know, that, that, that's, how, that's how city was, was, was where. I understand the point. And uh, it was funny because when I started driving around there, you know, one of the key things for me was just to keep exploring, keep finding, you know, potential networks that I can work with, right. you know, that I can partner up and all that. And uh, one of the first few months when I was staying, you know, in the, in the village over there, I actually drove into a palace. It's called Sri Mananti okay. in, in Sriman. It's literally where the Sultan of the state stays. So, but this is important to note though, right? And I think people, a lot of people don't know this about Malaysia. Mm-hmm. Still to today, in the states of Malaysia, there's a Sultan. There is a Sultan, a king. For that, of that region. Of that region. Yeah, yes. of that state. That's right. Right? That's right. And that person actually has influence. That's right. And exerts influence. And most Go of the ahead. time, he has the ground influence. Like, yeah. he has the ground respect in that sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, but I think more importantly, that's where names matter. Let's go back to names, right? Like if you look at Malaysia, it's the federal states of Malaysia. Right, right, right. It's not like the Republic of Singapore right, right, in that right, sense. Right, right. So that kind of gives you an idea, the constitution of how, you know, Malaysia started off, you know, through Malaya with the British colonialism and all that. Right. And yeah, I drove into a palace, all right, called Sri Mananti. And some Did of the, you know? I didn't know. It so was just, just a, randomly the, driving around. It was the nicest building in the village. <laughs> she just went in. Right, it's like a shiny little thing. And I'm right. like, oh, wow. This I wonder is, what that is. This looks like a great place, you know, to hang out, you know, to have tea and all that. I thought it was a right. restaurant. Restaurant. <laughs> <laughs> That's the best thing I've heard all day. Go ahead. That was 2011, you know, and, and somehow I made friends with people there, you know, who was working for the Sultan. I met the late Sultan. He passed on, I think, in 20, 2013, 2014, if okay. I'm not wrong. And the succession and all that took place like like just how queen elizabeth king charles came along right, right, right you know and it was it was amazing because after making friends with the sultan there i i became kind of like okay you're in right and suddenly all these villages started to invite me to their like random you know kids wedding parties and all that in the village again another unbelievable sort of sociological and cultural experience right it is it is it is it is but it also it's really informative about the way being in and being out mm-hmm are so different. What listed, what labeled. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Right? No, it's amazing because another part, you know, during that period of time, another part of friends or networks that I made in Malaysia was literally the people in the vice trade. Go ahead. It's, it's usually run by Chinese people, you know, who control some form of, you know, dark economy. You can talk about drugs, KDV, gambling, and all this online gambling stuff and all that. Okay. And because you have to survive, survive meaning, you know, if you get in trouble with the majority there, all right, there's actually a group of people who actually stand up for you for whatever reason. 
reasons. Right. And it, it gave me a cultural shock, right? Like how people outside of Singapore, again, we are a very rigid society, yep. like how they will operate. Like, oh, I, I don't go to university. Literally, I am the only university graduate that they will know and they were very proud of that right. for a very long time. Right, right, right. <laughs> Super interesting, right? Yeah. So when, why did you leave? Oh, I, so in 2015, I had the first successful exit from the farming business. Wait, so what, wait a second, wait a second. Most people don't think about farming and exits. How big was this business? Like, was, But it wasn't, I don't even want to say bootstrapped. Like you just built this business from scratch. Did you get funded no, from somewhere? Or? I did get funding. It was literally, okay, farming is like gambling. It's like going to a casino, right? <laughs> where the odds are the weather, the sky. You which know, you can't like, control. Which you can control in a right. sense. Which is... It's even better than, than casino, I guess, you know. Maybe. Well, because although, casino, you are controlled somewhere. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> although at some level, right, the weather is like the house and the house always wins, right? Absolutely. So I took it as casino and because of my background in quant and numbers and all that, you know, I, I looked at it from a probability standpoint. How much land were you farming? We started with about five acres. Okay. Uh, towards the end when it exited about uh, 300. All contiguous or? All continuous. Like no, no, contiguous. In other words, were all those 300 acres connected to each other? Oh, no, they're all in different states. Oh, wow. So it's all so over I started, the country. Yeah, I started in Serimban. It's in three states or rather two states and three cities, right? So I started in Serimban, which yeah. is about two hours away from KL. Okay. Then I came down south to Johor, to Kluang. There's Got a small it. plot there. And nearer, even nearer to Johor, in this small place called Kong Kong Masai. Which is in the southern part of Malaysia, close to which is Singapore. Which east, the, the east coast of Johor. Got it. So literally, if you are in Pongo in Singapore, which is the northeast of Singapore, you right. look across. You can see it. You can see it. Johor. Right? That, yeah. that place. Yeah. Yeah. So I sort of moved whatever opportunity for land is. Kind of like a nomadic farmer in that sense. And I managed the workers here and there. How many people did you have working for you? So towards the end, we have about 180 Mostly our farmhands. And it's crazy because for us, who number one, are non-Malay Malaysians. Right. Right. It was very hard to get even simple things like work permits for your workers. But weren't they Malaysians that were working for you? No, no, no. So that, here's, here's where the cultural differences again. Go ahead. There are different tiers in the society, right? I don't know this. When it comes to plantation workers, I would dare tell you maybe 80, 90% of plantation workers, agricultural workers, they're all foreign labor. Wait, so foreign labor. So they come from like Bangladesh, Indonesia. Oh, I was thinking Bangladesh, Sri Lanka. Absolutely, these places. Indonesia, dominant, probably 60, 70% okay. of their place. At some point in time, I think two or three elections ago, they were calculating there were about 7 million undocumented illegal workers in Malaysia. You know, when I first started doing, so I had a podcast that I used to call the Asian Blockchain Podcast, and we'll get, we'll mm -hmm. get to this in a second. One of the things that a gentleman was building was this idea of like a self-sovereign identity for the mm -hmm. foreign workers that were in mm -hmm. Malaysia because there were so many of them, a lot yep. of them coming from, which is, I didn't pull Sri Lanka out of thin air. Yeah. I think he was actually in Sri Lanka and he was telling me that there were so many foreign workers from there and yep. from Bangladesh yep. in Malaysia, yep. right? Doing the jobs like, like in every country that the locals didn't want to do. Absolutely. But they needed a way to send money home and all these other things, right? Yep. And he was trying to build that platform for yep. them using, and this is five years ago now or six years mm -hmm. ago, building mm -hmm. on a blockchain. Anyway, go ahead. So actually that's our first product with Shadow One. But, We'll talk about it that was in a it was all this accumulative experience, right? Like I was literally, you know, I'm not a conglomerate. I'm not a big. I'm just, I'm just Zhuang. You know, I'm a. Do you have anybody else helping you in this business at that C-suite level, right? Yeah, C-suite level means the last guy to eat, the, the first guy on the field, <laughs> yeah, right? Exactly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Believe me, I can. You know, there was understand. those ESOP stock yeah, options. I get it, no, I get it, I get it, I get it. So it's literally how much you put into the land and whether you can harvest that in X number of days. <laughs> and how much is left over for you? Yeah, but that. it gave me great experience in terms of how another side of the world works. You know, I was right in front of corruption. I was right in front of problems with permits, for example. Yep. 
like literally if you go to some of these places for permits right they will tell you not to bring a bribe like there will be posters for that but don't bring a bribe don't bring a bribe yeah and you will see how second class some of these illegal workers are mm. when they come into to Malaysia you know and it does make sense now because the UNHCR the hu- the UN humanitarian crisis response i think HQ is in KL is it really it is in KL yeah so this is the thing about corruption and bribery, I think, that most people don't understand. They just know what they see in the movies, right? Some guy with a paper <laughs> bag filled with money comes over to another guy yeah. who says, yeah, give me the money for the bribe. Yep. And then they have an agreement. Yep. But that's not the way it happens. Normally, it goes something like this. And you t- again, you tell me where I'm wrong, right? Sure. It normally goes something like this. Like, I need to get permits for these people. You know, can't have it. Mm-hmm okay, but I need to do this so I can do that. And this mm-hmm. person's involved as well in the mm-hmm. farming that we do. And if I can't do this, then that person doesn't benefit. Mm-hmm. How can we make this better? Absolutely. is really the question that ends up being the bribe. How do we make this better, right? Correct. So and in that term in Malaysia, how do you want to settle? Yeah, That's but, always the question that I get. Yeah, same thing. So <laughs> I've, I've had similar situations that we don't need to discuss explicitly where I've yeah. been in a place and I've just said to them, how do I make this better? How do yeah. I fix this? Yeah. No, absolutely. I, I think that's that's where it is. And I think when we look at places like this, you know, develop or developing nations, both yep. are the same. Same. There is a difference between the incentives of the guy asking the question, right. right, and the power that he has. Sure, and it's scale as well, right? And it scales. That's right. right. How big is the settlement? That's right. Yeah. Right. And and therefore, I can solve some of your problems, you know, because your problem, the market size of the problem is that big enough. Sounds like a yeah. startup. Deck. <laughs> it does, right? it does, it does. How big is the addressable market? The TAM, right? Right, exactly. <laughs> but here's the thing. You said you exited. What does a farm exit oh, look so like? And did you plan on exit or did someone just come to you and go, I need to buy all this land? So from a farming standpoint, right, we didn't have, we didn't own land, right? We always rented, you know, across the way and all Interesting. that. Interesting. Yep. So, so I started from a business, kind of like the software business today that, that, that we run in Shadow One, that is asset light. You know, you can just pack off from a piece of land, you know, and, and go somewhere else, right? Yeah. I started looking at where value is in that sense. And that's creating value internally in terms of the supply chain. So I figured out at a, at a small village that I was at, farming at 5, 10, 20 acres, you know, slowly expanding there. I realized, oh, I can really expand this you know, by trading. Go ahead. And literally, I just have to save enough money for one truck and go around this whole village and telling the rest of the producers, hey guys, you know, I can bring you to market. I can bring you to KL. I can bring you to Penang. I can bring you to Ipoh. Would you want me to ferry your stuff? I'll give you a cut for it. Yeah. And then... I learned something you know, that I think everybody should learn in life, something that I'm trying to teach my kids, information asymmetry, which is a huge thing in vegetables. But the only way to get information asymmetry is to be involved in something, right? In other words, you couldn't have just rocked up to that village, mm-hmm. looked around and said, okay, there's information asymmetry here. These people need to get their product from here to there. I'm going to buy one truck. Mm-hmm. You had to be in the farming business to know this. You have to understand. You had to build a network. That's my point, though. That's right. And you couldn't do it right away. It took you three years, four years, whatever it was. Yep. And then you could say, oh, wait a second. Here's the ancillary or supplementary opportunity. Yep. And this is true in every business. Every industry. But in every single business, right? So it's like Apple saying, wait a second. Why am I paying so much money to Intel for chips? <laughs> Why not produce it myself? Why not produce the, my own chips, yep. right? In a completely different format that I can control. It's the same thing, taking another piece of the value chain. It's no different in a way. Because you wouldn't know that. 
But you need you need the other side to accept that he's ignorant. Yeah, of course, of yeah. course, of course. You see, and that you can play the gap over there in a the sense. Yeah, exactly. And you need to work really well. Like, look what it, Apple did to Intel. And I'm just saying this because my computer's in front of me, not because I really care. Either way. But all along, you're buying their products. All along, you're buying. All along, yep. you're learning about chips, manufacturing, yep. understanding this stuff, right? Yep. And then one day you say, "Huh, if we can control that part of the value chain too, yep. it's more value to us." Yep. and more value to our clients as well. Is that fair? That's very fair. That's what exactly I did in the farming business. Right? To create value, first by trading volume in that sense. Yeah. Second, you know, the real assets are in, in, in the cold storage, right? The trucks. Who knew? The trucks, they are cold, you know. Oh, yeah, you, yeah. I want to last longer distances. I want to drive right. six, seven hours. All right. right, it's just a refrigerated truck, right? And if I want to store more, I want to have a base somewhere in key market like Salayang and KL, or rather, KL is a very small place in Selangor, actually. <laughs> KL is a very small place. Go ahead. It is a small place. Like, most people don't know that, you know, like Selangor is actually the capital, not KL. <laughs> KL is just a city. Right? Right. But anyway, oh, it's to actually have a storage house, a warehouse that it's a uh, cold storage, right? That is either run by yeah. air conditioning or by or cooled by water in a sense. Right, right, right. Yeah, super interesting. So from there, people got interested in how you know the margins are like and all that. You know, and then from a very unstable, you know, weather dependent business, it became a very stable. So the years that I truly made money, 11, 12, and thirteen. All right, if you look up in old news and all that, there were a lot of floods in Thailand and in Vietnam. Yeah, in eleven in particular in Thailand. But yeah, I remember really well because I moved to Thailand at the end of 2011 and the water was still It's huge, right? Huge. And the Toyota factories there all stopped, you know, major transportation. The camera factories, the lens factories, Absolutely. everything. The so, whole supply chain got killed. So the only one thing that I punted at that time was Chile because I looked up the, the MPOA, Ministry of Agriculture's like top value commodities of produce is chili. From Thailand, you mean? Oh, from Malaysia. From Malaysia, go yeah. ahead. And I don't know, Southeast Asia, we eat a lot of chili in that we sense. We do, we do. But then got into a lot of trouble because chili is one of the hardest plants to plant. Is it really? Yes, 40 over different kind of insects and 60 over different bacteria that will attack the leaves. Really? Still occupational hazard these days when I bring my kids around and look at plants and I, oh yeah, this yellow leaf, you know, they put some copper sulfate on it, which is a blue color liquid. I, so <laughs> this is one of the things I love, right? Is that once you're in a particular business, mm -hmm. again, no matter what the business is, you start looking at the world around you in a completely different way. Yeah. Right, like when I was, in, and I'll give you one example, but this chili example is great as well. When I was in the stock business mm -hmm. at Goldman Sachs mm -hmm. in Tokyo, mm -hmm. I used to run around the city mm -hmm. with one of my buddies who's also in the stock business. Mm -hmm. And we'd look up at buildings and go, okay, that's, um, I think it was Sony, 6758. Like we'd know the stock code. We'd play this little <laughs> that, game. The number for the, the stock. The yeah. stock code, yeah? yeah. So we yeah, would yeah. play this game because every company looked like a stock, which is for you, it's like every leaf looks like a... Every leafy type of produce in that right. sense, you know, like, I, I would generally know how many days or to whatever in that sense and I really would time it against the market. Yeah, yeah, fair enough. So at this point in time, you know, people were trying against, you know, all odds like at the end of the year, you know, monsoon period. Right. You try not to farm chili, you try to farm hardier plants and all that. Interesting. Because those, those have less attacks in that sense. So I purposefully tried to farm the highest value with the hardest commodity with chili. Yeah. And yeah, got lucky, you know, for 11, 12 during the times where there are floods and all that. So what part of the business did you exit? Was it the cold storage part of the... the, the so the entire gym. thing, the production, the trading, and the whole the whole entire thing, right? But who bought it? And you don't have to tell me exactly who, but like what type of entity bought it? It was an entity trying to de-risk themselves. Agriculture was it wasn't a vertical buyout M and A, right? It was okay. more they were trying to get into an entirely new business. You know, they were they were manufacturing. I think it was electronics, you know, textiles and all that stuff. It was a conglomerate. Yeah, they wanted to get into food. 
2015. And are they still running that business? Uh, yeah, they're still running up their business at the point in time. Interesting. So what got you back into finance? So I think it was also because of farming, you know, that 2015 after the exit, I started looking into what cryptocurrencies was about. Why though? I mean, you can't just go from like farming and stuff like that into crypto, can you? Yeah, I guess I guess I go where my interest goes, you know, and that's the double-edged sword in that sense, right? I like to look at things, I'm interested in things that are fairly complex, yeah, yeah. All right. But I try to understand it from a very technical, fundamental standpoint and I try to build something from there. Okay. What was your introduction now? To mining, crypto mining. You mined yourself. So a good friend came over when I was farming. And, and this was in Malaysia. Yeah, in Malaysia. So he called me up and he was like, hey, Tuang, I have 10 computers. Okay. Yep. Dude, what do you want to do? I want to put it in a cold room. I was like, 10 computers, put it in my cold room. Are you trying to open a cold internet cafe? You know, are you trying to provide internet? So you didn't. I didn't know. I didn't know anything. You didn't know anything. I yet. read about Bitcoin in 2013. I mined Dogecoin in 2014. What, just for you mined just, just Dogecoin? For, no, and, and a lot of people don't know that. You can actually mine Dogecoins. But you did it just because you wanted to see what was going on? I want to see You're what's going on. I mean, if you go to my Facebook and, you know, wherever it is, I can show. I'm not on social media anymore, but yeah, yeah, Facebook is there. 2014, I have that UI for mining Dogecoins. Wow. Every time you find a blog on Doge, it goes Doge yay. Nice. Like literally. But anyway, so 2016 <laughs> came, friend came, put 10 computers. I'm like, mm, dude, what is this, right? And he was like, oh, I'm trying to, you know, mine Ethereum. <laughs> what is Ethereum? Like, what is Ethereum? Like, what so is great. it? It's like some... some why does it grow? <laughs> yeah, like, like why, why mining and all that? And I guess I got interested in it because, you know, crypto is very highly complex. You know, if we think that we come from finance with our own finance speak. Right, right, right. Right, like, like we like to do this, right? I'll give you an example. We like to say, oh, I'll, I'll take a 10% haircut on a you know, pure vanilla product, you know, and blah, blah, blah. Right. And if somebody heard us having this discussion, and we're like, they'd be like, I heard the vanilla part makes sense. A haircut, is he going to get a haircut? Yeah. His hair is a little long. Like, they don't know anything. No, exactly. But I understand completely. Yeah, we will understand that. And we think it's, that we are masters of the universe. Well, we're just making up. We're making up things that could be just said. We're giving you a 10% discount on, right. a, on a simple product. Right. right? On a right. very straightforward, right. non-exotic product. Yeah, right. that's it. And Trying to make ourselves feel cool. That's and right. crypto does the same thing. 100% and with steroids, right? Can, yeah, can I, tell you, can I tell you this story? I was yeah. interviewing the, some people from um, YGG, right? Okay. Guild Games. Yeah, yeah. And they were saying, yeah, we're going to open a sub-DAO okay. in Vietnam. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, a sub-DAO? Okay, I know what okay, a DAO is. A sub DAO <laughs> isn't that just like if you're if you're going to give somebody else the ability to run mm -hmm. a DAO in another country, isn't that just like a franchise? Mm -hmm. So it's just like you're franchising it out. Yeah. They're like, yeah, yeah, but we just call it a sub DAO, and I'm like, you could just call it a franchise. Anyway, same so, thing. So yeah, yeah? It's, it's the same thing. Yeah, YGG founder Gabby, Gabby. Uh, very very good friends. Yeah, you know, good on. guy. Saw how he really rose, you know, the yeah, the yeah, guild yeah. games and all that. But anyway, so. 2016 came and, you know, Frank came and 10 computers and I was like, hmm, what is Ethereum? So I started reading the yellow paper, the white paper, you know, from Gavin Wood, from Vitalik and all these things. And yeah. the more I read, I guess because I'm a sucker for complex things, you know, I, I started to try to figure it out on my own and like, where can we apply these things for? Like I literally told, told that friend, you know, he, he was like, oh, this is going to be a asset class, you know, I'm not sure how much it's going to be. You know, we can sell it somehow. This was 15 and 16, you said? This was 15 and 16. Go yeah. ahead. That, that was the time where there were, you know, Literally, I remember three exchanges. There was one in Vietnam run by a bunch of, I think, European guys. Fair enough. And Vietnam banned crypto for like the second time at the time. There was a bit in Singapore, which became Gemini, if I'm not wrong. And there was uh, Huopi, China. Which still exists. Still exists. But at the time, Huopi only had three, three coins, right? Doge, Ethereum, and, and Bitcoins, right? <laughs> and it was, it was fantastically crazy. Like, and we were figuring it out. And back then, the mission was very simple. Personally, I always thought this digital aesthetics has to have a real-world application. It's got to impact real-world. Right, which yeah. is probably ninety percent of what we see in crypto today impacts impacts crypto, right? In that sense, yeah, yeah, right, and right, and so it's with that kind of mission that we still bears on today in the types of products that we build. And let me get to that. Yeah. 
So I started mining crypto and we got from, you know, 10 computers in eventually with a few thousand nodes and running and all that. We actually- All, we, all in Malaysia at the time? Uh, all in Malaysia. Then we shifted actually back to Singapore. We tried to partner with a guy here who runs one of the buildings here. You know, truth to be told, cost of industrial electricity here in Singapore is one of the lowest in Southeast Asia against all grain of, of thought. Did you ever think about if you're in Malaysia, right, expanding this into Brunei, which has super cheap- Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Electricity. But I guess at that point in time, there was trade-offs, right? So yep. cheap places or cheap renewable energy usually has delivery problems. Well, low, infra- low infrastructure, yeah. Deliver- delivery of energy problems, yeah. That's right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So I guess Singapore... infrastructure is not great. Singapore, where we are good at infrastructure is great. You know, like <laughs> That's the understatement of the <laughs> century. <laughs> Go ahead. Well, I have a lot of criticism of Singapore, but I think infrastructure, it works, right? It works over here. Yeah. So we actually started to look into that, you know, bringing back to Singapore, refurbishing a transformer over here with a partner. That didn't work out too well. How big was this getting though? It was getting like, like eight, 9,000 units, you know, mining rigs, GPUs and all that stuff. Oh, wow. Yeah. It was Were you big. surprised at how fast this was growing? I guess I was. You know, I was no, I actually was surprised that actually people want to buy this shit. Like this <laughs> Ethereum, you know, like we started at like 80 cents, then it jumped up to 280. And then I remember it was like $80, you know, somewhere in 2017. And we're like, oh guys, we hit a jackpot over here. You know, <laughs> yeah. It's time to exit. And that gave us the first problem. Because when we started to look at that, we were like, where do we sell things to, right? It's well, not like, the, that, yeah. it's not like the exchanges now. We literally had to go around, you know, in thumb drives. That was a time before... Trezors and Nanos, like hardware wallets were a thing, right? So we literally stored all the private keys, the JSTOR, USTOR files, any thumb drive. Every thumb drive had 20 Ethereum. And we were going around Asia Pacific, trying to figure out where's the best place, you know, the highest price to sell something. Because that whole process wasn't automated then. It wasn't even, there wasn't channels, I, I would right. say. You know, there were like local exist. Bitcoins, there were like random. Do you think that contributed to what was happening in 2017 and 2018 when all of crypto crashed for the, not the first time, but the biggest first time, yeah? Was that there was no on-ramp and off-ramp at the time? Actually, no. I mean, on-ramp and off-ramps are double-edged sword. The faster money comes in, the faster money can go sure, out in sure, a sense, sure. right? But I think yeah. the biggest problem in crypto in 2016 and seven, or 17, 18 in that sense, the first winter, I always call it, it's... It's projects not delivering on the products that they're talking about. Yeah, fair enough. Right. I mean, this gets back to your real world usage, right? Like crypto was really good for crypto, but it wasn't really good for anything else. Yeah, everybody was coming out with all sorts of different white papers and all right, that, right, right. you know, but at the time it's really a layer one uh, time. In fact, I have a hypothesis that it's still a layer one, you know, era in a sense, you know, yeah. even during this winter. We're not past it, yeah. We're not past that. Yeah. But back then it was ICOs, you know, raising a lot of money in digital currencies, right. in Ethereum, you know, whatever it is, you know, and not delivering on whatever they have to do, which caused a lot of hurt, right? Yeah. And that's when, when money starts exiting the market, you know, quote unquote, the first crash in that sense. And isn't it the case that at the beginning of any sort of new financial market, mm-hmm. that there's going to just be a lot of unmet promises? Like mm-hmm. literally, if you go back to the beginning of Wall Street as well, mm-hmm. go back to the 1919s, 1910s mm-hmm. and stuff. Mm-hmm. It's not that different. No, it's not. At all, actually, yeah. is it? I think the biggest difference is that I think for the first time with digital assets, crypto, yeah. Web3, whatever you want to call it, it's the combination, right? Of economics, finance, and tech. Yeah. Yeah. yeah you yeah. you either start off with one of these verticals. Right, right, right. But if you compare maybe, you know, the Great Depression, yeah. you know, it's, it's purely financial. Right. Like, like really paper at work. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. You see? And, and how it's structured and all that. But this time in the first time in history, right, transformationally, right, it is these three disciplines and it has all different ideas and concepts and all that all gelled into one big thing. So if you go back to the 1919s, right, mm-hmm. the, the original crash, right, the stock market crash, what's the right way to say this? The way that information was shared back then mm-hmm. was really just like this. 
Yeah. And it was like word of mouth and yep. some writing. So it took a long time for people to figure out in relative terms what was actually happening. Yeah. Right. So that's why that's why the whole arc of this was like really, really long when the stock what was it, nineteen twenty nine? I can't remember. Yep. I can't remember anymore. But like right before the Great Depression, right? It took 20, a long 25, time. To, yeah, it took a long time to come go in and yep. a long time to come out because just the idea that like all things lagged information wise. Yep. Whereas today it's just there. It's like instantaneous. Yeah. <laughs> right. So the crashes are super deep. Yep. Like you could see Ethereum go down 19% in seven days yep. after the merge. Yeah. Yep. And then you're like, whoa, that was fast. Yeah. But then it just like kind of sneaks back up again to like its regular rate. And anyway. I guess that's where it really, really, I mean, in winter, as we, the last one that we went through in 17 and 18, 19, right? right? A lot of people, there are a lot of naysayers, a lot of haters out there, you know, for digital assets, but nobody really talks about the things that it actually, the, the blockchain is working, right? It's yeah, because the, of the speed of finality, settlement, transparent that is on the public ledger. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's creating the speed of, of rise and fall. Yeah, it's not going away. Yeah, it's not going away. It's never going away. As a matter of fact, everything's going to converge into that at some level, right? So like three years ago, when we started working with some of the government-related agencies here in Singapore, uh-huh. right, with our payments and our financing product, you know, using public blockchains, there was still a debate. Like, I'm going to use a private blockchain. And, you know, your public thing is just scam and all that, you know. Three... So tell me exactly what does Shuttle One do? Yeah, so we do two things, right? We service B2B companies, enterprises, all right, with Web3 products. Number one, for the use case of payments, using stable coins for cross-border transfer for payments of third party and all that. We're okay. connected to 87 countries globally now. Second, we build a DeFi app on, on it where we use crypto liquidity for financing in that sense. But, so what is the impact recently of what happened at Terra Luna and what happened at Celsius? Oh, on wow. even just On even just, sorry, go ahead. Yeah. I think we aren't that impacted that much, right? Because we service the real world in a sense for a real use case. Right. Like even if, if Celsius went down, you know, which they are, they which are getting there, they're getting will. there. <laughs> right. um, you know, the, the, the guy who we service paying third-party logistics providers, they still need, you know, the payments, uh, rails and all that. Right. Yeah. Or if a SME from Thailand wants to take a loan in that sense, you know, we, we service those things. Right. So we are, we are applying the promises of what a public ledger would be and we, have, we are supporting 26 public ledgers. In a way, does the dislocation in the market help firms like yours? They're actually doing real things because as opposed to somebody going, okay, I have these Bitcoins. Someone tells me I can get 25% return on them. It feels kind of fake, but everybody's getting it. Let me give it to these people. They'll lend it out and then they'll lend it out to somebody else and lend it out to somebody else and I'll get my return. When that thing blows up, they're like, okay, wait a second. There's got to be some reality here with this tech. Where is it? I think for us, you know what I mean? Yeah. I think it goes back to the day when my friend came with 10 computers and I told him, this has got to be some real world application in a right. sense, right? How crypto will run, I don't know, rise or fall in that sense, you know, doesn't really impact the work we do because we build on the technology in and of itself. So this is the thing that I wanted to talk about. Yeah. Because this is the thing that's really interesting to me. I don't care yep. where Ethereum is trading. <laughs> I don't care yep. if Bitcoin is at 20,000 or at 60,000 or yep. at 2,000. Mm-hmm. Because to me, what's always mattered mm-hmm. is what is that technology layer yep. going to be used for and how does it change Yep. my life. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Of course. And, and the level of Bitcoin, sure, if you own some, you want it to be higher by mm-hmm. definition. But what is that tech going to do? Yeah. Is what's really important. So I think from a public blockchain standpoint, mm-hmm. a lot of people don't really talk about this is that how, how, how do we build a network? Go ahead. That's a key thing. I think yeah, from yeah. From when, when I started in the ICO wave, you know, 17, 18 in that sense, we've always talked about community, community, community. But in that, in that 17, 18, it was always a community of speculators in that sense. Yeah. Yeah, These yeah. days, you know, in, in the real world, quote unquote, in that sense, the, the top process has always been, who's actually a part of this network? Who, who do I need in that sense? Right. So when we start doing, when we started doing, I mean, for payments, I think it's quite easy. How do we combine data between, you know, blockchain data to 
banking data in that sense. Okay. So we're kind of like the the plate or plot of crypto, right? We we tap on both sides. We are able to give a banking verification number, all right, so that the uh, users who are cashing in and out of their crypto can go to the bank and ask them, you know, wh- where is the money at this point in time? Can you tell me exactly how this works? So if I'm a client of yours mm-hmm. or I'm part of this network, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Just tell me from scratch yep. how it feels, what it looks like, and just logistically how it works and yep. what it's meant to accomplish. Sure. So I think before that, I'll take one step back. Please. Right? One step back in what are we solving in that sense? Yeah, that's what I want to know. And it started with our experience with mining. I think life is all about tinkering and trial and error and experiences, right? Yeah. And how you apply those things. Yeah. So that's the philosophical part of things. Part of our experience when we went around, you know, the whole of Asia with thumb drives, if you remember earlier yep, on, yep, yep. was a very simple question. Like when I meet somebody that I don't know, right? Let's say in Korea, for example, trying to sell for the kimchi premium at the time for Ethereum. Is uh okay, here's the Ethereum and you're gonna transfer me money, right? Right. So do I pass you the Ethereum first or do you pass me the money first? Right, because how do I trust the fact that Absolutely right? like when I walk into a store, I get my goods, yep. I give you my credit card. Yeah. Square. Yeah. Yeah. And this problem, you know, perpetuates until today. That's why I always tell my team, we are still very early, guys. Super early. This OTC P2P network, right? It's a huge liability problem in terms of compliance. Who transfers first, in a sense, right? So we we can solve it in two ways, right? One, which is what we are doing now in terms of our product. It has been implemented in production for the last one year. When you want to transact tokens, right, the tokens go into the smart contract. Time lock the smart contract 24 hours in that sense. Build a network of fiat liquidity providers okay, who can do domestic money transfers. Right? You can think of them as remittance agents and all that. Yep. So you build an electronic market right, for the value of the tokens all right, to fiat through a licensed intermediary all right, who is... Bounded by a service level agreement that's in the software. So That's in the software though, yeah? That's in the software, in the Go Docker ahead. that we've created. So this solves two things, right? One, on the banking side of things, where our work is like played or plot, we're able to see whether there's incoming or debit or credit transfers. If you tell me that, you know, you're going to bring in, a thousand, uh, I'm selling $1,000 worth of Ethereum to you, I have to see in that banking account that is, that, that is destined. How complicated is this to do in the sense that you're now connecting the banking system, right? So if I have an account, I'm just making it up. Yeah, mm-hmm. If I have an account at Citibank, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you have to see the money hit my Citibank account. Mm-hmm. At the same time, you also have to see the Ethereum move into my wallet. That's right. So, right? so that's why I say I like to take complex things and try to make it as simple as possible. Go ahead. Right? In terms of banking, in that sense, no bank will give you, all right, if you don't prove yourself, you know, whatever it is. Sure. Today, in terms of banking data, all right, we go back to Web2 now, take one step back. Yep. There are open banking API guys, you know, who are trusted third-party licensed in wherever it is, right. who are allowed to touch or service the data from the banks. Yep. So it's either you work with them or you work with the banks themselves. Yep. Right. So we were lucky during the pandemic, you know, where we started to work on the networks where the banks are on. So you can think about SWIFT, you can think about ACH, you know, CPA right. and all that. So that's why I say, you know, no, nobody really tried to understand how does it, what does it really take to build a network? Yeah, and if you think about it, right? Like if you asked your mom or dad, yep. and I'm just using them as a proxy for just like a regular person, yep. what happens when they put their card into an ATM? <laughs> yeah. And the paper comes out. Exactly. What happens in the back end? Like it's, it just doesn't die at the back of that machine. Which is, I think, very complicated. Go ahead. It is not just complicated. I think it is a human problem because the attention span or the focus of humans, we just don't question the right things enough. Right, exactly. Like, 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 I literally had this discussion with my mom and dad, now that you bring up, you know, like, I I told my mom and dad, you know, like, remember the times where you were asking grandfather and grandmother, all right, to use a bag? That was a, you know, probably a conversation in the 50s or 60s in a sense. And my mom was like, oh, yeah, you know, I told grandma that, you know, it, it would be better for them to put it in this 
brick wall thing where right. there is security. Right, right, right. Where Rather than leave it at home somewhere yeah. and it's safe or something. Exactly. Yeah. Leaving at you, you know, they got it for you, you know, and it's safe because of X, Y, Z and all that. And I told my mom, hey, mom, this sounds like exactly what smart contracts are about, right? Right. Yeah, I've been talking to you for the last it's five years. It's just in software. Exactly. The yeah. only difference is it's in software as opposed to in like words between two people and maybe like a written SLA, same thing. Exactly. Yeah. So I think people don't think true enough. Yeah, they right? definitely don't. Yeah, go like, ahead. Like there is a huge problem in the fintech space these days. These days where we were talking about payment networks in that sense. And in Singapore, right. it's a myriad number of payment networks in that sense. What does it really mean? You know, and the biggest problem is, you know, we have a lot more fraud that is coming up. In the US, you guys call it the wire fraud in a sense. Right. Basically sending a screenshot and just telling the other side, oh, I sent the money, right, uh, with a screenshot, but right. it doesn't. There's nothing on the network, right? And this is what we depend on, all right, for the most parts. In the last, I guess, what, four to five years, when when Web two fintech started to rise in right. a sense, and now we have crypto. Whoa, another crazy amount, you know, another layer of complexity on right. top of that in a sense. Yeah. So that's really the first problem that we tried to solve. Got it. Right. To to bring a trustless network of fiat liquidity providers and crypto. All right, that is judiciable, enforceable by law, wherever we are in that sense. So what does that mean when you work with the government, right? You just said judiciable, right? Yep. And enforceable by law. This is actually kind of important to people, yeah? Yep. What role do governments and regulators play? Oh. And, and how has their mindset changed like over the past three or four years in working with companies like yours and even just individuals yep. like you who go yep. to them and say, hey, how about this thing? Firstly, I, I like to place myself where balance is in terms of this debate of decentralization, centralization. Go ahead, you know, in terms that, of I was going to ask you about this. Yeah. yeah, in that sense. And I think when I started off in 2016, 2017, a lot of companies in crypto was talking about self-regulations. Right. We self-regulate or we think of, we don't be evil, right? Taking the Google slogan, in a sense, right? <laughs> right. But that's a fallacy because at some point in time, you know, you'll become evil. If not, you are the evil itself. Right, right, right. right. If you're sitting around a table Absolutely. and you don't know who the evil person is, Absolutely. it's you. Correct. So Correct. you can have all great intentions and all right. that. And when things happen, when things goes wrong, as we see right now in the, this current winter, you, know, right. oh, you, you have a lot of different things coming up. I'm in the middle where we are able to see consumer protection is needed. Yeah. In that sense, you know, no governments of the day will try to stifle in all good intentions, innovation, right? If it earns them, you know, tax money, revenues and all that. Right, right, right. So for us, when it comes to regulations, we are all for the regulations that is balanced with the progressiveness of how the innovation is going to be. So what does that mean though? So from that sense is how the benefits of a public blockchain or the digital assets that is created will create economy and protect, you know, the users at the same time, either by law Judiciable, judiciability, all right, or through self-regulation. So a combination of both is where I guess it's needed in a sense. And for this, you know, I think I have to, you know, do the national services or applauding, you know, the central bank here, MAS. They have been really trying very hard. So I'm not Singaporean, right? I yeah. can say whatever I want. Of course. And remember, early, I don't know if you said this when we were recording when we weren't recording, but you were like, Singapore has its own problems, right? And in a yep. way, born and raised here, right? Absolutely. It's almost like your family. Where, yep. in a way though, right? In yep. the sense that like, you know internally in your own family, like... What's happening? My cousin's not perfect. <laughs> and I can say whatever I want because it's my cousin. Yeah. But don't you say anything bad about him. Absolutely. Right? Yep. It's the same thing, right? Mm -hmm. Like, it's the same thing with Singapore. Mm -hmm. It's your thing. Mm -hmm. So you can say whatever you want. But for, as an outsider, mm -hmm. I look at what the Monetary Authority of Singapore has done mm -hmm. in amazement. Mm -hmm. Right? Wow. And if you think about... Yeah, but only because it's all relative, Yeah. Yeah. Right? It's all relative. Yep. No one's perfect, right? Yep. Again, your cousin's not perfect. Yep. But I feel at least like the MAS 
mm-hmm. is attempting to gather as much information as possible, yes. eliminate this information asymmetry, mm-hmm. and then try to create a regulatory framework mm-hmm. to ensure mm-hmm. that businesses, new businesses can run, but that no one gets frauded. No, absolutely. And, right? and this is where I like to, you know, just bring up one point, right? Doing a bull run, great time. Sure. You know, we always hear people talking about, you know, ah, it's my money. Don't tell me where do I invest and yeah, all that kind of yeah, stuff, yeah. right? And then when, I do my own research. Yeah, I do my own research sure. and all that. I know my own risks are great. You know, I made a hundred. I times. do until the market crashes. <laughs> I'm not in it for. I'm in it for the tech. Right, right, right. right. And then when winter comes, you know, people are crying out loud. Hey, hey, where, where's the police? Where's the government? Yeah, where's the government? How where's the law? Protected. Absolutely. This is where you know perspectives and time frame matters. People don't really question you know certain things that happens in the market. People trust a UI, you know, and and don't see how the infrastructure at the back works. I guess for Singapore. You know, in that sense, that's where we really have a great balance in that sense. And I will echo that because we work with some of the regulators that is on our licensing case and all that. They really want to try to understand, you know, where we are. We actually operate in that so-called gray area of DeFi at this point. Like we do trade financing, right? In the in the standard banking TradeFi way of trade financing, you know, it's the bank lending out the money, yep. you know, and then there's an agreement and all that. And for us, it's not. We merely facilitate. We don't hold, you know, liquidity in that sense from crypto capital directly to the borrower in and of itself. So what's the benefit for someone who's borrowing to do it in a crypto way as mm-hmm. opposed to doing it in a traditional? So I think for us, we are able to streamline most of the treasury because of a smart contract liquidity pool, if I may, risk management in terms of credit scoring for that matter. And lastly, you know, the loans that's in and of itself, right? Where liquidity, treasury, and loans are all combined into a series of smart contracts, series of tokens. So one of the work we do is to tokenize real assets, trade cargo in that sense. So if you just put everything on a, on a smart contract, there's the relevant approvals that is autonomous, decentralized. Oh, you really cut down 60% of the, of the bank's costs. So asset tokenization yep. is a big deal. It is a big deal. And also the ability, like you said, to apply sort of I don't want to say unbiased, right? Because to the mm-hmm. extent that somebody's writing the contract, their bias may be written into yep. this contract as mm-hmm. well, right? But mm-hmm. let's put that aside for a second. Mm-hmm. This automating of whether it's trade finance or any kind of lending yep. and combining all those components into one thing and making them smart contracts makes it so much more efficient, yep. cheaper, but also this idea of t- being able to tokenize any asset at all, yep. right? This room could be tokenized. Yep. This whole room could be tokenized and fractionalized and fractionalized and the fractionalization is where the democratization of finance actually really happens Mm -hmm. but here's the maybe the last thing i'll ask you Mm because i feel like we've covered a ton of ground yeah but there's more to do which means you have to come back (laughs) part two if you've enjoyed this at all you have to i love it At what level do you feel a responsibility to, like, financial literacy matters, mm-hmm. right? And all of these products, like you said before, right? We could sit here and talk about yep. plain vanilla and blah, 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 and all yep. stuff. But it's really just nomenclature for us. We yep. could say it in much easier terms. Yep. But the reality is that most of the world doesn't understand finance traditionally. Yep. What do we need to do? Mm-hmm. And what responsibility do we feel like we have to be able to make everybody sort of crypto literate? Mm-hmm. So to them, it doesn't feel like frankly, the way the internet felt 25 years ago, mm-hmm. that it's just for criminals and we don't know, it's too complicated. You yeah. know what I mean? Like when I first told my mom mm-hmm. to get an email address, she was like, why? <laughs> but it's not that different from today. Absolutely. Where if you said to your mom, you should have a crypto wallet, she'd be like, huh? Yeah. Right? So what do we need to do to educate everybody about this? I think continuous, and this is a tough part because- Yeah, you it's know, hard. Everywhere in the audience. There is no real answer, but I'm just curious yeah. what you think about it. To me, I think it's a constant, consistent message right, of, of understanding, 
and actually learning and revising how things work yeah. in crypto, right? Most of these things are, you know, like, why do you need a crypto wallet? Oh, it's like a bank account, right? Oh, why do you need a bank account? Oh, because it's an electronic ledger, you know, for you to store your money in that right. sense, right? And why do we need money? Because money is really a ledger physically of how we account for goods and services. Well, where we, how we place value on things, right? Absolutely. Yeah. So I think... It, you know, the whole crypto space has to be continuous in terms of the kind of knowledge, right, that they will dish out in that sense. And more of the knowledge in crypto these days are self-serving. Yeah. If you come to our Twitter and look at what we are talking about all the time, right, we don't promote our things all the time, right? We don't even tell anybody, you know, which is bad. And my shareholder is going to kill me, but, <laughs> right, like, I'm not, I'm not going to tell you, oh, you use this product because it's going to give you X, Y, Z, you know, percentage in that sense. Right, right, right. We literally give you, like, the basic understanding fundamentals of how crypto use come about. What do you look out for, like, tokenomics? the hard things that matter that nobody wants to know. And it's this consistent message that goes on. This is what crypto needs. This is what crypto needs. Right? So that's the perfect way to end this conversation. <laughs> Hong Zhuang Lim, did I get it right? The CEO of Shuttle One? Perfect. That was awesome. Was that okay? That's okay. Super duper. Thank you very much, Michael. Thank you very much. 